Thank you, Alicia. Loved that you threw the word expositing in there. That's what we're going to do. All right, we are in uh, 1 Corinthians 7. For one more week, we've, got, we've been in chapter 7 for a bit. Uh, it's a longer chapter. We've got one more week there. And um, today's text does bring us back to matters of marriage and singleness, but it's really about a lot more than that. Um, and uh, let me just say up front, as a way of uh, intro, that this is a more difficult passage, um, but difficult for different reasons than some of the previous passages have been difficult. Um, the difficulty we tend to have with this passage is it seems to present marriage as simply a distraction to serving God. Um, as a distraction to really being wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. And you'll see what I mean as we go through this. But the more I reflect on this, and I, as I've um, spent time in this, this week, I'm convinced that the difficulty here is not really with the text, but with us. With some of the assumptions and priorities and beliefs that we've bought into that need confronting, and that this passage does confront. What I mean is that for many of us, we've become over-fascinated with and consumed with what are often good, Christian even, things like marriage, like family, like career and work and planning for retirement and all of these things, which are good and often necessary things, a part of living this life. But what this text shows us is that in a sense, there is a, or there is a sense in which these are worldly and temporary things in ways that are difficult for us to admit. They're not ultimate things. And when a, when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. And God has a lot to say about idols. And this, I suggest, is the reason that we find this passage difficult, that it strikes us, that it is we who are out of sync in our emotions, in our priorities, in the things that we are anxious about and consumed by and dedicated to, and not Scripture. So keep that in mind as we go. We've got a number of verses to get through today. We'll go through verse 38 because we already covered the last couple of verses in this chapter. So starting at verse 25, we get the subject matter presented. It says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So you, if you've been with us, you may remember that at this point in the letter, Paul is responding to some things that the Corinthians had written to him in a letter. So when he says, now concerning, he's bringing up one of those subjects. Um, we don't have that letter from the Corinthians. It'd be nice if we did. Um, so we don't know exactly what they ask and what the issues are, but we can tell pretty well by the things that Paul says. So from this larger section in chapter 7 that we've been going through, we know that there were some in the Corinthian church who had very, on the one hand, who had very loose ethics concerning sexuality. Uh, some of the men were going into prostitutes, apparently. Um, there was a guy who was sleeping with his stepmother, and the church was turning a blind eye to these things. 
On the other hand, and on the far other hand, there were also some in the church who thought that sexual relations of any kind were bad. And perhaps marriage itself was bad. And Paul has had to tell them, no, if you are married, sex is a good thing. Marriage is a good thing. If married, you are not more holy if you refrain from sexual relations. And you certainly shouldn't get divorced to serve the Lord. So here, we are still within this overall subject of marriage, but the specific topic is the betrothed. Now, this word betrothed translates a Greek word that means virgins, and it typically meant just uh, women of marriable age who were not married. And the question is, should they get married? And this isn't only about women. This is, as we'll see, about men and women. But if you have not been married, should you get married? And Paul says, he begins, he says, I have no command from the Lord. And what he means there is uh, there's no written testimony specifically from Jesus on this topic, as he has had on, on other issues that he's talked about. But still, this is, for us, God's word. What Paul is writing to us is God's word for us. So what does he say? Verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Now, the first part might bring back memories from last week. Uh, it is good for a person to remain as he is. This was the big idea of the section we covered last week. Be faithful and fruitful in serving the Lord right where you are. Don't think that you need to make massive changes to your life, to the external situations, your position in life to serve God. So if you're married, don't seek to get out of that marriage. Per serve God within the marriage, which Paul has already said. If you aren't yet married... Paul says here, don't seek to get married. And we're like, what? <laughs> That's the first thing that kind of catches us off guard, right? But keep reading. Uh, Paul immediately qualifies that as not a unilateral command for everyone in all time about what is right and wrong. He immediately says, it's not a sin to get married. Those who haven't been married are free to get married. So how do we take this? This seems to be in the category or in a category of pastoral wisdom about how one can serve and honor the Lord being aware of what either marriage or singleness brings to bear on that. How mar being married or being single might affect one serving the Lord. Now, to be very clear, in light of the larger context, what we've read and what we will read, we can clearly say that marriage will be the right course for honoring and serving God for some and singleness for others. Both can be pathways for glorifying God and serving others. And here's the thing. Glorifying God and serving others matters more than whether you're married or not. If we don't grasp that much, none of this will make sense. If we think the biggest question is, 
Am I married? Do I get married? Or don't I get married? Now in these opening verses, there's one more thing Paul says that we need to unpack. He begins in saying, in view of the present distress. In view of the present distress. So everything that he just said there, that we just read, is kind of uh, subsumed under this. In view of the present distress. So what does this mean? Well, there are a couple of options. One option is that there was some unique historical situation going on at this time in the life of the Corinthians that led Paul to give such advice. Perhaps there was increased persecution. There was some context for them in that time that led Paul to say, don't seek to change your situation right now. Don't worry about marriage, getting married, any of that right now. If this were the case, we could then take the rest of this section as fairly limited in its application, right? Limited to that context because of the situation they were in and not perhaps necessarily relevant for all people in all times. And in a way, this would make this section easier for us to read because we could just, any part that's difficult, we'll just be like, well, that pertains to them. That's because they were in this situation that we're not in. But Paul goes on to give more explanation of, of this situation, of this present distress, in ways that rule that out. It is clear that what he has in mind in this present distress is simply the reality of living life between the second or between the first and second comings of Christ. Life in this world after Christ, waiting for Christ to return. Um, he will go on to say, the appointed time has grown very short. The present form of this world is passing away. The big idea is that the life death and resurrection of Christ has set in motion the quote-unquote last days when the mystery of salvation through God's Messiah has been made clear, has been made known, has been proclaimed, and now is to be proclaimed to all people. Jesus has come. Everything has changed. Uh, one commentator says it like this, since the decisive event of history has already taken place in the mystery, in the ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, all subsequent history, including where we are today, is a kind of epilogue, necessarily in a real sense short, even though it may last a very long time. It's hard for us to fully grasp what this would have felt like for Paul and for those in that first century to realize that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the hopes and dreams, all of the promises and proph prophecies that God had given over a thousand plus years. You know, we, we have the tendency to want to think that the time we are living in is utterly unique. I assume every generation does this. Well, if you were living in this time, you could actually say that. It was utterly unique. Jesus was the centerpiece of God's story, that the mystery had been revealed the solution to the problem of sin and, and human rebellion, the final answer had come. And yet, life still went on. The end wasn't quite yet. 
we still deal with sin. And so we live in this already but not yet time, if you've heard that phrase. Already, Jesus has come, everything's been set in motion, but it's not yet finished, completed. And we've experienced both joys and sorrows or distresses. And part of what this meant for Paul and those he's writing to and still means for us is that there is a new urgency and weightiness to our lives, to everything we engage in. In light of Jesus, life doesn't just go on as normal. We don't just continue on in marriage and business and home improvements and raising kids and retirement and planning for our lives as normal. Jesus changes everything. Everything takes a back seat, a position of secondary importance to the reality and meaning of Jesus, to the gospel being proclaimed, to disciples being made, to us persevering and enduring faithfully into the end, living in light of what is to come. And the big question in this time is not, do I get married or not? Do I pursue this business opportunity or not? Do I make this change or not? The big question is, am I living for the Lord and for the things of the Lord with the short time that I have? So this is what Paul is getting at. This end last days period from Jesus until he returns that from our perspective understandably, seems like a really long time. And it's really easy to lose any sense of urgency and weightiness. And it's easy to just go on as normal, being consumed by these good and sometimes necessary things. But that's what Paul is pressing into. And, and we see this clearly in the next verses. So the second half of verse 28, he says, those who marry will have worldly troubles. I'm glad there was no amens after that. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now, to be clear, Paul is not echoing a thought, thinking, very common in our days. It says, well, you only live once, so make the most of it. Get all of the fun and enjoyment and excitement and experiences you can out of life because it's all you get. The present moment justifies the end, so just have a good time. That is not what Paul is saying. No, Paul is saying you are not guaranteed another day. It is true. You don't know when your life or the world as we know it will end. And yet, there is more to come. You will live again. Eternity is coming. And eternity and the things that carry over to eternity, the priorities of God's kingdom 
Justify the moment. Live in light of that. Live your life in light of the reality that is and is to come. Don't store up things on earth. Store up treasures in heaven. Devote yourself to the things of the Lord. Live with the urgency and weight of God's kingdom and purposes. Now, having said that, it is very, very important to notice that Paul does not say, and so, don't have any dealings in the world. Don't get married. Get out of your marriages. Don't engage in business. Don't take care to provide for your family. Don't rejoice or mourn. All of this list that he goes through. He does not say, well, these things are just unfitting for Christians, so don't do all these things. No, these are things of the world that we must give ourselves to and engage in to some degree. Marriage requires our attention. We mourn and rejoice and have various other emotions. Uh, this perhaps refers to uh, the joys of birth and the, and the mournings of death. These are realities of life. We must work. We must give time to business and providing for ourselves or our family. All of these things are simply realities of life in this world. And there can be good, there can be much good in doing these things. Elsewhere, Paul says, whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. You are serving the Lord Christ. So we can serve God in our marriages, in our parenting, in our schooling and education, in our work, in our business, in the various experiences and emotions that we go through. But we should not get caught up as if this were the sum total of life. As if these things were eternal and ultimate and what we are alive for. I think part of the difficulty that we have here is that this is a category of things that we, that we don't think about that much or that we aren't very good in maintaining. So things that are good, things that are perhaps necessary, things that are a means of us glorifying God, and yet things that are, in the end, passing away. What do we do with those things? Well, they're certainly not meaningless. The, the, the solution is not become a monk and nun and just remove yourselves from all of these things. But it does mean keep a loose grip on the things of the world. Even good things, perhaps especially good things, like marriage, like family, like work and pleasure and education. Keep a loose grip on them because they are passing away. Marriage is passing away. Family is passing away. Again, this, this, that's kind of hard for us to admit, right? Work, pleasure, whatever business or career or church we build, whatever money we save, whatever influence or position we attain is passing away. That doesn't mean there's not eternal consequences and fruit to bear through these things. But they are not the end. Do our lives reveal that we believe this? That our home is not our hope? That our family, 
and marriage is not our hope, that our income and savings, our ability to go on vacations, our ability to do certain things and have certain experiences is not our hope. Is it evident by the way that we live that we are living for more than this? That we are living for the Lord? Paul continues on the same thing, but he applies it specifically to the question of marriage, whether to marry, whether a betrothed, an unmarried person should get married or not. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried and betrothed or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married man, woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Uh, if you go back to verse 28, uh, this connects with what Paul said there. Those who marry will have worldly troubles. So what is this about? Is, as it might seem, marriage simply and nothing else than a distraction from serving God. And if that's all it was, wouldn't it be, I mean, wouldn't it be sinful to get married? Or at least unwise. What is Paul saying here? Well, the truth is, there are many anxieties and troubles that come with living in this world and dealing with worldly things like marriage. And again, you can't fully avoid this. But you can enter into it wisely. And I think what we have here is a warning to count the cost, to know what you're getting into. Namely, know that serving the Lord in marriage looks different than serving the Lord in singleness. You won't and you don't have the same bandwidth and opportunities and freedoms in marriage as you do in singleness. And if you think you do, you will not have a healthy marriage. Sadly, there are numerous examples of great, in a sense, great pastors and missionaries and ministers who did great and wonderful and far-reaching things for the kingdom and were well thought of and loved by by many, but had horrible marriages because they didn't count the cost. So consider what this looks like for the unmarried. Paul says the unmarried man or woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Now, one thing that we should definitely note is that this is not necessarily the case. This is not necessarily the case, perhaps is rarely the case today, especially with men. Unmarried men today are not known far and wide for being godly, using their time to serve the Lord, being faithful to a church community. Thankfully, we have some awesome exceptions to this in our church, by which we are greatly encouraged. But simply being unmarried doesn't make you godly. However, The unmarried Christian does have the opportunity, at least, to give undivided attention to the Lord, 
You have bandwidth and energy and time and perhaps resources to more fully focus on things of an eternal nature. Evangelism and missions and mentorship and theological training and Bible study. You might be able to move overseas more readily than those who are married or move into a a, a dangerous situation more readily than those with families. These are good opportunities. It can look different if you are single to what serving the Lord means. Now conserving what, consider what this looks like for the married. Paul says the married man or woman is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife and his interests are divided. Now, Paul isn't saying this is inherently a bad thing. A husband should seek to please his wife. A wife should seek to please her husband. We've already been over this. Paul speaks about it elsewhere. The Bible speaks about it in numerous places. Um, Perhaps you've come across the command in Deuteronomy 24 that God gave the Israelites. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. Amen. Where are the groups lobbying for that? In Ephesians 5, Paul himself says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Marriage is a context for honoring and serving God. Honoring God as we love others. You have opportunities for ministry and missions within your marriage, within your family. Serve God where you are. But at the same time, marriage also involves and family also involves a lot of worldly things that are just a reality, like laundry and lots of cleaning and cleaning up and yard work and raising the kids and working through the tensions and difficulties that can come with marriage, giving an inordinate amount of time to one person or just a few people. Again, this is not a bad thing. It just is. And these necessary demands of marriage and and of the other worldly things that we have to give ourselves to, like work and school and vacations and our health, they can temper our sense of urgency and weightiness and devotion to the Lord. Yes, we should seek to have a healthy marriage, to love and serve our kids and our spouse, including in the very worldly things of laundry and dishes and yard work. This is not, don't, husbands don't go home and say, the pastor said I don't have to do laundry anymore. But don't live as if that were the sum total of what life is about, of what your calling and purpose in life are. Our call is not to live for our spouse or our kids or our work or our comfort, pleasure, and ease, but for Christ. Paul writes elsewhere that Jesus died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Only Christ died for us. Only Christ died for us. We love and serve our spouse, but we don't live for our spouse. 
which means that 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 phrase that goes around, happy wife, happy life, or happy husband, happy wife, is not a totally Christian phrase and probably leads to making an idol of our marriage or our spouse or just our own happiness. You should care about your spouse's happiness. But your life and happiness is not ultimately in pleasing your spouse or in having a spouse. But in pleasing God, which involves loving and serving your spouse. So finally, how, how are we to think through the options of marriage and singleness? And Paul sums it up in the last verses here, starting at verse 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So Paul and God's word are not restraining us to one or the other, to either marriage or singleness. Both are acceptable, both are good. As we saw earlier, Paul, they're both spiritual gifts that God gives. They're, they're good things. This is not a question of sin. For some, it will be better to remain single and devote full attention to the things of the Lord. For those or others, it will be better to marry and glorify God through serving a spouse and kids and being involved in church and community. But the overarching point in this is that as you go about thinking through these big life decisions, to marry or not, to move or not, to change jobs or not, to have kids or not, do you consider the impact it will have on serving the Lord? Is that question prominent in your thinking? Or are we merely concerned with worldly priorities? Now, to a degree, we have to be concerned about worldly priorities. But are we merely concerned with worldly priorities? What is pleasing to me? What will be easiest for me? What will help me achieve, uh, us achieve our goals, our dreams, to retire early, to travel the world, whatever they may be? If these are our greatest concern, and we, we have to admit it, much of the time they are, then surely we have not yet grasped the urgency and the weightiness of God's kingdom and priorities and the passing away nature of this form in the world and, and the various kingdoms that we try to build in it. Craig Blomberg writes, For all of us, single or married, if the end of the world truly could come in our lifetime, we should have an urgency about the Lord's work that contemporary Christians seldom reflect. And even if the Lord delays his coming, sudden death claims too many lives for any of us to ever assume complacently that we have a certain number of years or decades left to serve God more leisurely. So how do we do this? How do we grasp 
the urgency and the weightiness of living for God and his kingdom and priorities? Is this merely a guilt trip? Like, oh yeah, I should probably care about that more. Um, that doesn't work very well. Think about how anything in your life becomes a priority. Like, we're starting this fall season. Like, how do you set priorities for your schedule, your time, your calendar? Well, you value the things and you give time to the things that you think are worth it. You come to see that something is worth sacrificing for. If anything is to become not just a, a check on a to-do list, a slot on our calendar, just a nudge on our heart, but is to become a heart-level priority and love and devotion, we have to value it. We have to come to see that it is worthwhile. And the same goes here. We must see the value that it is worth living for Christ and his kingdom over our own kingdoms. We must see the value and worth and beauty of who he is and what he's done for us and what he has promised us. And having done that, we must be willing to admit that even good things like marriage and family and work and careers and education and community involvement and sports pale in comparison with knowing and being known by God. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is Jesus our treasure? Is his kingdom, will, glory, and purposes our treasure? Yes, we will have many worldly things to attend to. And those are opportunities to glorify God. Work at them with all your heart as to the Lord and not for men. But don't get so caught up in worldly responsibilities that you forget what life is about. That you forget who and lose sight of what God is up to in Christ and in you in this short and passing away life. We're going to take communion now. And in communion, we are turning our attention and hearts to the beauty and worth of Christ. In the cross, we see with the greatest clarity the goodness and love of God. As we read earlier, he died for all that we might live no longer for ourselves but for him. The reason Christ died for us is not simply to give us benefits, but to change us into people who live our lives no longer for ourselves, but for him. So consider, as we take communion, the wonder of the cross and the beauty of Christ on the cross and risen for us. Let's pray.